According to the Merriam-Webster's dictionary, an atheist is a person who does not believe in the existence of a god or any gods. This non-belief can spring from a number of different causes in a person's life. Um, perhaps if I'm an atheist, perhaps I've examined the evidence, perhaps I've looked at creation and history and holy scriptures, and after examining those things, in my opinion, there just doesn't seem to be enough evidence to prove to me that God exists. Some people are atheists because they just haven't seen enough convincing argument to change their mind on the matter. Or maybe there are too many unanswered questions. Maybe there's a lot of evidence there, but a lot of the details still remain mysterious to me until, until I get an answer for all of those questions that are circulating in my mind and heart, then maybe I'll just refuse to believe that God is real. Maybe I'll, I'll stay an atheist until I'm certain, I'm absolutely sure that all my questions about who God could be have been answered. Atheism can spring from an unwillingness to think beyond the limits of our senses. Some people rely so heavily on their sight and their, their touch and their ability to hear and see. The work of the Holy Spirit at times defies natural law. It goes beyond what we can see with our senses. It, it is a matter of faith. And so it might be difficult for me to perceive that it is anything more than a fairy tale or a myth because I'm just not used to operating in that way. Maybe the implications of God's existence are just too much for me to bear. Thought, thinking about the Lord God being sovereign over all people, somebody who is wholly different than us, can be very intimidating. If there is a God who has authority, that means that I'm a sinner. That means that I cannot be the center of my own universe because the universe is not mine. And I don't want to let go of those notions of, of self-centeredness. I don't, I don't want to think of a universe where I have to be subservient to a greater power than myself. So there are lots of different causes that lead persons to, to believe that there is no God in the universe. However, a person comes to hold this view, refusing to believe that any kind of God or gods exist, that will undeniably have a major impact on the way that person views the society around them. To an atheist, any form of religion must be, at very best, nothing more than a practical sociological tool. This tool is used by those who believe to give them hope, to give them some anecdotal comforting answers to some of those pressing mysteries of life, to motivate ethical behavior, and to create a shared identity among a group of people. But at worst, the atheist can view religion as a cruel and deceptive tool that those who know the truth use to manipulate and control others who are too shallow to let go of youthful superstitions. Though there are probably not too many among us today who would consider themselves outright atheists, I want to challenge you to broaden your understanding of this particular kind of worldview. In addition to this definition of traditional atheism, I want you to consider a kind of atheism that is probably far more common and widespread that you have maybe not considered before. Think about this. Not even Satan is an atheist, is he? Though he is constantly the adversary of God and opposes the will of God at every step, Satan is not so bold as to claim that God doesn't exist. According to James 2.19, even the demons believe in God and they tremble at him. They shudder. Puritan theologian Stephen Charnock, in his famous book, The Existence and Attributes of God, 
suggests that there is another, more widespread worldview than traditional atheism, which he calls practical atheism. Practical atheism. The practical atheist doesn't deny that there is a God. The practical atheist might even consider themselves a religious person. If pressed, they would be happy to declare that God is real, and they may even be inclined to engage in religious church activities. But what sets a practical atheist apart from a Christian is the fact that though he confesses the existence of God, the vast majority of his time and effort is spent living as if God does not exist. It could be that the practical atheist doesn't think that God really cares about what he made. Maybe he believes that God is real and that he's out there somewhere in the universe, but he doesn't say, see any practical or meaningful way in which that huge God is still affecting the world that we live in today. Essentially, this is what we call deism, that God is real, but he's so far away that he's obsolete to us. It doesn't really matter. He has left us to our own devices. And so many people treat God as an idea, but it is an idea without teeth and claws, without substance. It could be that the practical atheist believes in God, but not in God as he has received, uh, revealed himself to be to us. Not in the specific God of the scripture. That God asks too much. That God is too nosy. So they have embraced the idea of God, but they have redefined God to fit the kind of picture of what a God should be like in their own mind. The kind of God that they would be comfortable existing alongside. They believe in a kind of God, but they don't believe in the true God. So their disbelief is undercover. There's atheism there, but it's veiled with this false belief in a God that is really ineffective, that really doesn't affect their life at all. Practical atheism is believing that God exists, but living a life in which that God is nothing more than a philosophical theory or a cosmic mascot cheering us on or a cultural good luck charm that you can run to when you need it and hopefully shake a little good karma out of from time to time. For all intents and purposes, practical atheists live as though God doesn't actually exist. Sins that exist in their life are not abandoned. They're not even hated. The mission of the gospel is not supported in any meaningful, real way. His thoughts are almost never revolving around God. He doesn't sit and contemplate the beauty and the wonder and the awe of this God that he claims to believe is real. Whenever he is engaged with godly activity, he's usually anxious for it to be over so he can move on to things that really matter. Titus 1.16 describes this practical atheist. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And it is hard to hear that spoken in such clear and stinging terms because probably all of us have acted like the practical atheist at one point or another. Through the book of Ecclesiastes, we have seen King Solomon who does believe in God and who has lived his whole life under the old covenant law, playing the part here in Ecclesiastes of the practical atheist. He has experienced the blessings of seeking after God, but the grand questions of life have got him wondering if it's possible to find fulfillment and satisfaction apart from God, 
through the normal channels that an ungodly person would pursue. He wants to know if the secular approach to life that basically pushes God to the margins and focuses on our efforts and our ideas, if that can really be enough to satisfy us and give us peace. We have made the journey through and into chapter 4 so far. And the answers to the question to this point is a resounding no. That this pursuit of fulfillment through human means is only going to lead to vanity. The lifestyle that ignores the Lord has not resulted in freedom or joy for the preacher of Ecclesiastes. It has proved itself to be empty and has led to grief and heartache for him. But he has some more reflecting to do. And we're going to join him in that this morning as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. So today we're going to take some time to hear what the preacher has to say about our actions, about our striving, the way that we use our efforts, the way that we live out our life and spend our time, the practical expression of our time and work. What wisdom can the preacher give us about our striving this morning? Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 4 through 6 will shine light on this subject. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. This section here that we're about to study frames out the extremes of those who strive, those who refuse to strive, and then explains that both are vanity. The alternative is a handful of peace that can only come from a proper understanding that we are not the solution to life's great problems. That solution is only found outside of us. Verse 4 begins by challenging the wide-held belief that working hard is always universally a good thing. The preacher doesn't go about this by questioning work itself. He could do that. He has done that, hasn't he? We have already seen that in a world, a world touched by death, that hard work just ultimately needs to be done all over again. Tomorrow I'm going to have to wake up and work hard again. Tomorrow after that I'll have to wake up and work hard again. That that work doesn't produce an end, a satisfaction that leads to eternal rest. We've seen through what the preacher has experienced in his own life, the thrill of accomplishment. How is it? It is a temporary joy. When we achieve success, it might give us a thrill for a moment. It might spark a little happiness. It might make us feel like the job is complete. But as soon as that job is finished, the mind begins to long for the potential blessing of another job well done or another project that needs fulfilling, another battle to fight. All the fruit of our labors are also described by the preacher as temporary. When we die, when ultimately death touches us, then all the things that we work so hard to accumulate for ourselves, all the achievements that we built, will then pass on into the hands and responsibility of someone else. And we don't know if they're going to treat them the way that we desire them to be treated. We are ultimately not in control of the things that we obtain for ourselves. Since the preacher already made these observations earlier in Ecclesiastes here, he questions the striving of man <clears throat> by looking below the practical surface of the busyness. He argues that all the efforts and striving of man are not only corrupt themselves, but they flow out of corrupt motives. 
namely the heart of man, which is forever and always influenced by envy. Envy from the Hebrew word kin'ah, which means literally rivalry, jealousy, a burning desire to have what someone else has. While in the English language we sometimes define envy and jealousy as two different things, envy being a desire for what someone else has and jealousy being a zeal for protecting what I already have, the Hebrew doesn't really separate those two words. There's just one idea. One word communicates both of those concepts. From the context here, though, we can see that the envy that Solomon is referring to is the desire to attain what someone else has already attained. So much of human achievement flows from this wicked envy of our neighbor. The depravity of man, our sinful nature is such that instead of feeling a pure sense of happiness when someone else succeeds, there is usually this undercurrent. Sometimes it is so very subtle that you almost don't even notice it. There is always this haunting thought that wonders if they deserve it as much as you do. If I could get that thing that they have accomplished, if I could do a better job than they did, wouldn't I appreciate it more if God chose to give that thing to me? These are feelings that we don't like to let surface too much in our minds, but they are there in the corners of our thought. The sinful rivalry that exists between man may be at the heart of the free market economy that gives us such abundance here in the good old United States of America, but it comes with so many strings attached. This rivalry makes it difficult to put others first. When we are always striving to get what is best for ourselves, then we tend to do that on the backs of other people. This rivalry causes us to be bitter at times when someone gets more or does better than we do, even if they earned it, even if they clearly deserve it more than we do. We have a hard time celebrating their achievement because we want ourselves to be the ones being celebrated. This rivalry can lead us to cheat. It can result in people stealing from one another or becoming obsessed with getting one step beyond what our competition is doing just so that we can hopefully rest easy knowing that we are in this superficial lead, whatever that is. Even when people try to do good apart from God, their efforts are not righteous because there is always a root of selfishness and a pursuit of God's glory for ourselves. Listen to what Lord Francis Bacon says about this envy of man. He says, Men's minds will either feed upon their own good or upon the other's evil. And who wanteth the one will prey upon the other. And whoso is out of hope to attain to another's virtue will seek to come at even hand by depressing another's fortune. What that means is that even when we have we're going to be tempted to either take what is better from someone else or suppress what they have so that what we have looks better than what they have got. Envy is the reason that Penina, even though she had many children, harassed Hannah, who had no children of her own in the first chapter of 1 Samuel. Their husband had favored Hannah and had given her a greater portion of goods to be sacrificed to the Lord when they went together to Tabernacle. And so Penina was envious and harassed her rival again and again and again. From what? From envy. Envy is the reason why Adonijah, the half-brother of Solomon, had in 1 Kings chapter 1 tried to establish himself as king 
all over all the nation of Israel, even before his father David had passed away, even though it had been proclaimed very clearly by the prophets that Solomon was supposed to succeed after David. Envy is the reason that Simon the magician, who was trying to establish a great name for himself, tried to buy the power of the Holy Spirit that he saw on display in Peter and John and the other apostles. He envied the reality of that power that God had expressed through his chosen people. Peter told him that his heart was not right before God because he desired it for the wrong reasons. He envied their, their abilities and wanted to be great himself rather than exalting the name of Jesus Christ. This envy causes strife and contention among men as we find it so hard to be satisfied with all the good that God has already done to us. And we become obsessed with the notion that the Lord might choose to bless someone else differently than He blesses us. Though He has every right and grace to do so, doesn't He? God doesn't owe us one thing. So the blessings that He chooses to give to me or to you or to any other person, does He not have the right to do that freely? Every human being that He has given life to has offended Him through sin. And the Scripture tells us plainly that that means that all of us are under the rightful curse of death. All of us are subject to the, the correct and just punishment of God because we have all pushed away from the giver of life, the source of love, and the only one dependable truth in the universe. So when God chooses to have favor upon us, that's what grace is, undeserved favor. Shouldn't we just celebrate that? Shouldn't we be grateful for those who have received God's gift even though they didn't do anything to earn it? And yet this envy in us atrophies our heart to such a degree that we struggle to celebrate the good in others. Charles Bridges says, the better the work, the more the man is hated by those who have no heart to imitate him. And we cannot help but remember what motivated those Israelites who scandalously accused Jesus of sins that he did not commit and drove him to a sinner's death. In Mark 15, 10, it says, For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Because of envy in the heart of man, the Son of God, perfect, holy, and pure, was seen as a rival instead of a savior. Think about that. Is life really about striving to do your best when our best is so utterly driven by an envy of someone else's heart? Is that really why we exist? To do the best that we can? In contrast, friends, to be a part of the body of Christ is to find greater joy in the exaltation of the head of the body and to know that as long as the head is exalted, then all of the body benefits. The greatest work in the history of mankind is the work of Christ, putting others before himself, becoming a curse for us so that the curse of sin would be lifted off of our shoulders. This is the gospel of, of grace that we celebrate today. It is the gospel of grace that has made so many of us new. That work will never be rivaled by anything that we can do. So why do we strive so so difficultly to try to exalt ourselves above our neighbor when there is one who will always be exalted higher than we are. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Friends, the opposite of envy is contentment. Think again of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, which we talked about a little bit last week. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ for whom the whole body, 
joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We are healthiest when we put Christ first. When the head flourishes, the body of Christ becomes all the more healthy. So this envy is something that must be put to death in us by the blood of Jesus Christ if we are to walk rightly and see our striving and our labor and our work in a healthy way. Envy keeps us from joy because if I must win, then I could never be happy when someone else is the victor, when someone else is blessed. God has the right to demand suffering and loss from us. His blessing is grace. It is undeserved favor. So we cannot behave as though we have earned our blessings and our peace. The peace that he affords to us transcends our work. How can the answers to the mysteries of life be found in striving and in labor when we see here how much evil comes from trying to do better than the person next to us, inevitably at their expense? A misfocus on success and achievement has the potential to do great damage to the people that we love because we artificially value our own success above what really ought to be valued, the image of God, which is present in every human being. This rethinking of labor, this uh, reimagining of striving, might tempt the man who desires godliness to reject hard work altogether. But verse 5 doesn't leave that option open for us as Ecclesiastes 4, 5, and 6 progresses. Verse 5 says, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. This is a terrible visual. But what it's talking about here is the opposite of working, working, working to try to achieve what is best for myself. It refers to laziness. Laziness and apathy, which are not the solution to envy and striving. When the scripture says to fold one's hands, that is a phrase that we need to become familiar with. It means to sit unproductively, not engaged in anything that bears any useful fruit. I imagine my hands folded as I'm laying in a hammock, sipping on a cold drink on an afternoon, just sitting there, not doing anything. Not that rest is wrong, but one whose hands are perpetually folded is one who does not want to do hard work. <clears throat> I remember one of my very first jobs out of high school I worked at Orchard Supply Hardware, which is kind of a dinosaur, right? It's going the way of the dodo. I uh, used to love that store. It was a hardware store that had a great variety of things in local kind of communities. And so I was, was one of those guys that bounced around from, from section to section. I'd work in plumbing, and I'd work in electrical, and I'd work here and there, trying to learn as much as I could about hardware and about home improvement and things like that. And I remember going in for my review, and I thought I was, I I was going to do pretty well in my review. I'd been working really hard. But as I sat there, or stood there rather, in front of my, my, my manager, he goes down this list and he's, he's telling me all the things that I was doing well and he says, well, there's one thing you really need to change. He says, you need to get your hands out of your pockets. And I pulled my hands out of my pockets real quick and I said, uh, what do you mean? And he says, well, regardless of the fact that you try to be a productive person here at Orchard Supply Hardware, when you have your hands in your pockets, it's sending a message to everyone. It means that you don't have anything to do. It means that you are not ready for whatever job is coming next. So you need to have your hands out of your pockets. In a sense, my hands looked folded even though I was trying to be a productive person standing there with him. We need to have hearts that are ready to work. We should not be these kind of individuals that are working as hard as we can so that we don't have to work anymore. Work itself is not a problem. Work is not a curse from the Lord God. So to obsess over work and accomplishments is to embrace the sin of envy, yet not to do anything, to fold one's hands, is self-destruction of a different brand. 
Solomon's writing here in Ecclesiastes about the danger of laziness echoes the many important sayings that he gives to us in the book of Proverbs. Solomon wrote both books. And so if we flip in our Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6, we will see that there's much to say on this, this concept of laziness and remaining idle in life. Here we're seeing the two extremes of the, the spectrum when it comes to how we perceive our work. And we're going to see that neither one of them is where God wants us to be. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Solomon writes, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. <clears throat> Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. You see that image again, clearly in Proverbs chapter 6? And poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. Here, King Solomon offers up a, a very common, well-known example of hard work that we can see every day in our backyards in the animal kingdom, the example of ants. When we consider the way that ants work, we can observe some relatively noble features to their way of life. Solomon wants us to consider the fact that they do not sit idly by. You almost never see an ant just sitting there. Ants are productive. They're doing something with their time. They are busily searching for food. They're returning it to the colony. They're interacting with each other, which reminds us that ants work not only on their own, but they work together. They work as a team, even sending chemical signals to other ants to let them know where they've found food and leaving trails so they can get it back to where it needs to be. But the primary focus of this passage in Proverbs 6 is pointing out the fact that they think ahead for what they're going to need in the future. They don't neglect to labor in preparation for meeting their own needs. Verse 7 has confused some because most people are well aware that ant colonies often do have a kind of chief officer, ruler over them. They have a queen ant. But the point of the verse is that these ants that you observe, the ones you see walking around working, they don't have a manager peeking over their shoulder all the time. They don't have to constantly see someone cracking the whip to make sure that they're going to do the things that they're supposed to be doing. They don't need to be pushed to be motivated constantly. The ant operates in such a way that they know the value of the hard work they're doing. And they're not tempted to just run off and, and have fun. They, they want to get done what needs to be done. Preparation and planning are, are seen as very valuable here as is a willingness to make the most of one's time. And we can contrast that to a certain situation that we saw in the New Testament when we read the Thessalonian letters. The Apostle Paul was writing back to this group of believers that were struggling because there were many who professed Christ and were, were firm in their confidence in Jesus Christ and His return, but they were so caught up in that return that they had stopped doing the things that a person would normally do to sustain themselves. They figured that since Jesus was coming back, they didn't need to work anymore. What was the point in putting all my efforts into this passing, uh, this passing, this passing work that doesn't really matter once we have our mansions in heaven and we're reunited with the, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? And so in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, and, and then 11 and 12, it says, Now we command you, brothers, we command you, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. This tradition that he's talking about means that when Paul and the other apostles planted that church and dwelt among them for a time, which was their practice, they led by example 
They were constantly engaged in working hard and applying themselves. They were not just sitting around living off of the, the fat of the land or living off the generosity of other hospitable folks. They were applying themselves to the building up of the church there. They were caring for the people and trying to meet their needs as well. The quiet life that, that is encouraged by Paul in verse 12 in just a minute uh, is also uh, brought hand to hand with this picture of being productive and working hard. Look at verses 11 and 12 from 2 Thessalonians 3. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. There's a play on words there in the Greek where those two words seem very similar to one another. Not busy at work, but busy bodies, caught up in the business and the affairs of others because they were not applying themselves to the work that they needed to apply themselves to to sustain themselves. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work. How? Quietly. And to earn their own living. So this quiet life that is encouraged by Paul in verse 12 is going to be echoed in the sixth verse of Ecclesiastes 4 that we're going to look at in just a second. But first, returning to the Proverbs and the testimony that Solomon laid for us there. Proverbs 22, verse 33 through 34 says, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an, unarmed, or like an armed man. This proverb in chapter 22 repeats almost word for word the ending of the proverb we saw in chapter 6. The repetition stressing the importance of the matter. Those who are not willing to work hard and plan ahead, those who would much rather fold their hands and treat every day like a day of rest, will likely be disappointed to look around one day and find themselves in a state of poverty. You can't put off work forever. Eventually, it's going to catch up to you. That is how we should understand the second half of Ecclesiastes, verse 5. He who folds his hands eats his own flesh. In other words, his laziness becomes self-devouring. The dangerous allure of laziness threatens to sabotage our well-being and leads us to harm our own prospects for the future by spending too much time on our leisure, our hobbies, failing to make good use of what God has provided for us so that we might be able to fulfill our own needs in so much as He has made us able to do so. So to fold one's hands is not talking about prayer. It's talking about excessive rest, resigning oneself to idleness. And it is a symptom of great selfishness in an individual. When we refuse to get moving, when we refuse to contribute and be a part of, of the work that needs to be done, then we are exhibiting a selfishness towards others. If I do nothing, then I'm not helping those who are in need. I'm not caring about what, what needs, needs me to be met in their lives. If I do nothing, then that something still needs to be done. So if I'm not doing it, I'm pressing it upon more able people to do it. I'm pressing it upon more responsible people to be applying themselves to the work. If I do nothing, then I am a practical atheist. For God consistently calls His people out of idleness. My laziness is direct rebellion to God when I refuse to do the holy things that He has called me to do. You might recall that there are, are two different categories of sins. Sins of commission, where you do something that is wrong and you violate a, a command of God that He says, don't do that or keep away from that. But there are also sins of omission that we often forget about or don't think about much because they're harder to measure. It's harder for somebody else to call us out on these sins. But God has not only called us to stay away from what is wicked, He has called us to be a people of love, a people of, of good who apply ourselves to the gospel commission that He has given to His church. 
So when we refuse to be involved with our brothers and sisters, when we don't have any time for the people who have needs around us, when we're not applying our skills and our efforts and our resources to the building up of, of Christ's name in our community and in the world, we're committing sins of omission. We are not doing the things that God has woken us up to do. Man striving, either the excess of work motivated by envy and ambition or the lack of effort motivated by selfish desire to be served rather than to serve others only highlights this monumental truth that life's questions are not to be answered by the efforts of man. They are only answered by a power that resides outside of ourselves. The answer lies in the God that Solomon had started with and then drifted away in order to try to find new answers. We long for simple solutions as human beings, don't we? Easy fixes that eliminate the struggles that we grow tired of battling through day in and day out. But while the solution to this problem of superactivity and laziness is actually a quite simple answer, it is not necessarily easy for the heart of man to embrace it. Chapter 4, verse 6 says, Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. This holy mindset of verse 6 contains what is lacking from both of the two verses that preceded it. Verse 4, working hard to solve life's problems is likely ill-motivated by envy. Verse 5, doing nothing to solve life's problems is lazy and self-destructed and, and motivated by selfishness. And then verse 6 shows us that we cannot solve life's problems through our own striving, but that the Lord can provide that peace and quiet by showing us that it is not man, but God who provides the solution. Rest clearly has a place in the life of the believer. Stop and think about that for a moment. God has designed into His desire for us times of intentional rest and peace. We're not to be constantly burning ourselves out for the glory of the Lord. That is not what He calls us to do. He calls us to trust Him. And once we trust Him, to express that trust in active ways, practical ways. Hundreds of years before the law of Moses was brought down to God's people from Mount Sinai, God set a pattern that He intended man to follow. When God made the heavens and the earth, He made it in six days. He strove for six days. He could have done it in an instant, but because he wanted us to learn from this process, because it was significant and meaningful to us, and because he loves us, he took six days to create. And then on that seventh day, he rested. Again, not something that he needed to do, not something that he was just waiting for, couldn't wait for the weekend. He rested because he knew that the man that he was creating in his image was always going to be a man that wasn't quite God that could not quite fulfill his needs for himself and so would need to learn this restful peace, this dependence that comes in waiting on the Lord and knowing that he is more important than us but that he also loves us greatly and will satisfy our needs and give us the things that he knows are good for us. As one of the ten foundational commandments that we were eventually given by Moses, the law to observe regular rest through Sabbath observance should not be written off or considered obsolete just because Jesus challenged the superficial way that the Pharisees and the scribes practiced it. These outwardly pious individuals criticized Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, which they interpreted as work and a breaking of commandment. But he reminded them of an important reality. 
Mark 2.27, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is a New Testament truth, brothers. The Sabbath was made for you. Sisters, the Sabbath was made for your rest. It is God's gift and provision for you that we would stop regularly, that we would work hard, but that we would give ourselves chances to breathe in Christ, not just to sleep, although that is a part of the rest that God gives, but to literally have our well filled with the living water of Jesus Christ. Sabbath can still be a blessing to the church today, and it should not legalistically rule our schedule. It should not be followed with such a strict ritualism that our Sabbath rest becomes a, a holy excuse to not minister to people who are in need. But we would be arrogantly self-reliant if we denied that we need regular, uninterrupted time to just worship our God. It is He who supplies the wisdom and the strength and the heart required to live the lives that we are called by Christ to live. The point of Sabbath rest is not simply rest itself. It is resting in the promises and the providence of a God who is able in every way that man is not. Ecclesiastes 4.6 is an invitation to cease striving, but it is not a command to sit idle. Better is a, a handful of quietness. Do you notice the details of that? If one handful of quietness is good, why doesn't the preacher of Ecclesiastes instruct us to have two handfuls of quietness? I think it's probably because one handful of quietness leaves one handful to still do the work that God might put across our path, that we should find a good balance here. Two handfuls full of toil and striving means our hands are, are not free to rest in the Lord. Two handfuls of quietness might mean that we're not free to help those who have needs that come across our way. We must rest in God in such a way that we're always available to respond to the prompting of the Spirit to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Don't mistake this for a synergistic approach to salvation. That's not what we're seeing here. It's not God's going to do His part on the cross and we've got to work hard and then together we'll, we'll make it to the Holy Land. That's not what is being said. It's simply acknowledging that those who rest in the saving grace of the Lord God will find great comfort and joy and not only resting when God commands rest, but also in working in obedience to the same command of God. The true mission of discipleship, which is at the heart of everything that we do as a church, is to increase your love and knowledge of God so that you might live all the more faithfully to Him so that He'll be glorified in this world. Our doctrine is incomplete if we do not allow it to have a practical outflow in our lives. So do not be content to fall into this easy rut of practical atheism. Do not set the Lord aside as you struggle and work to build a life that you think will bring you happiness. Likewise, do not be content to set the authority of the Lord aside, ignoring His call to serve when you, while you sit with your hands neatly folded. Instead, be a Christian, a practical theist, one who believes so sincerely that the God of the Bible is real that it would be ludicrous to go on living our lives as if he were not. Would you bow with me as we conclude in a word of prayer? God, we thank you for the grace that you afford to us. We thank you that you consider our weakness and you provide exactly the strength that we need in your word. 
there are many things your scripture does not reveal to us, and those are things that we do not need, or else you would supply them, Lord God. But, oh God, how much is here that we have overlooked? How much is provided for us that is necessary for our edification? That we might work out faithfulness according to the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. How much of it is overlooked because we don't have time? We're too busy building our own kingdom. Or how much of it is overlooked because we just don't want to take the time that we have and spend it on you. We'd rather spend it on our pleasures or on leisure. Lord God, help us to be a people who are well-rested, well-rested in Christ, well-rested in the knowledge that it is His work that saves us and not our own, so well-rested that we are ready at a moment's notice. We are ready at Your command to do whatever You call us to do according to Your Word. I thank You, God, that You will help us to fulfill this and to practice the kind of theism, the kind of belief in God that marks the true Christian. We love You and thank You for Your grace. We will not do it perfectly, Lord. You know that. That is not a requirement to enter into heaven because the perfect righteousness has already been fulfilled. It was fulfilled on your son, Jesus Christ, and that is the righteousness you see when you look at those who believe in his work. And so thank you, God, for loving us like you love Christ because of the work that he did that is ours now. We thank you for all that you do, and we pray that you would supply our needs in Jesus. We pray this all in his name. Amen.